here, if you would, take out the, the insert for the message uh, today. In our Jesus, Son of God series, we are well into now the third and, and final year of his public ministry. Again, first year, inaugural year, baptized by John, coming on the scene, disciples calling them to follow him. <coughs> Second year, year of popularity. Word got out. This, he's something very special about this person. He, he can perform miracles. He delivers people from their demons. Uh, he was just uh, very much popular. Uh, hundreds of thousands came to know Jesus and follow him, perhaps more than that. But the third year was the year of rejection, where the, the crowds stopped following him. If they were on Facebook, they would have unfriended him. And one by one, they, they, they turned their back on Jesus and just walked away. And, and it's because Jesus pointed out that, that he was nutrition like another, that, that he's the bread that came down from heaven, that we need him for everlasting life. And that was offensive to a lot of people. And one by one, those crowds walked away. Uh, by the way, if you've ever been rejected or perhaps you're being rejected right now, if there's ever a person that understands that, it's Jesus. He's on your side, and he'll never uh, reject you or forsake you. Now, there was an upside, though, to this third year, the year of rejection, and that was that Jesus was able to spend <coughs> a lot more time and quality time with his disciples. And we saw that last week. Jesus takes them north, Caesarea Philippi, beautiful Roman town, really, even though it was in Israel. And that's where Jesus asked them the two questions, who do people say that I am? And then the, the question that counts, who do you say that I am? And again, the, the, he spent quality time with them, and they, they needed this. They really did. <coughs> now, all of them but Judas was putting their faith in Jesus as the Messiah. And that was a big deal. However, they had some misunderstanding as to, uh, again, what the Messiah is now to do. And, and therefore, Jesus, again, had to spend time with them. And he says things that, that, that really uh, shock them. And they have to readjust their thinking. Now, such is also in our text today. Matthew chapters 24 and 25. I mentioned at the beginning of the service, this event happens less than two weeks before his death. Jesus is in Jerusalem. He, he's with his disciples. He looks over the city. And he weeps. He weeps, weeps because Jerusalem as a whole and the leaders in the church, they have rejected him. And, and, and Jesus says, God, saying, how I wished I could just gather you together as a, a hen gathers her chicks. But you were not willing. Okay, that, so that's, that's the scene. They're in Jerusalem. And, and, and they are at the temple. Now, now, the temple was a big deal. You have to understand this. The temple was a huge deal for the Israelites. And having a temple was, in their way, a way of God saying, I'm, I'm blessing you as a nation. Now, no, they didn't always have a temple. Um, if you look at uh, the Old Testament tabernacle, they get to Jerusalem. The, uh, finally, finally, Solomon builds the temple. Beautiful, beautiful temple. Um, but after... Uh, a few hundred years after Solomon, when the Babylonians came, 
they completely destroyed Solomon's temple. And it was a sign of God's rejection of his people. They go into captivity for 70 years. When they're finally released, they go back to Israel, back to Jerusalem. They have some funds, not a whole lot of funds, but some funds to rebuild the temple. It was never the same. It wasn't as nice as Solomon's temple. Now, hundreds of years go by, and there is this Inumian named Herod, and he's, he's filthy rich, and he's, he's declared to be the king of Israel during the Roman occupation, and he wants to appease the Jewish people that he is over. Therefore, he funds rebuilding that temple into something much better, much more in line with, with what Solomon had. And again, this was exciting. If we were in Israel at the time, you know, seeing things being rebuilt, seeing things going back the way Solomon had built them, or even better, it was a very long project. It took 80 years. It began in, in 20 BC. It was finished about in the 60s AD. Jesus and his disciples, as boys growing up, as they would travel to Jerusalem, which was customary several times a year, they would see the progress. Now, you have to visualize this. Please use your imagination. Um, the, the, the temple area itself um, was, uh, Jerusalem is top of a mountain. And, and just like South Mountain, you get to a mountain top and you can look over and there's another little mountain top over here. Jerusalem, very similar. But where the, where the temple was, was the, was the highest peak, Moriah. And Solomon, what he did is he had it leveled the best he could. So the really high places, you, you, you knock it down. And, and he was able to create a 36-acre area, 36 acres. So Lamb of God has six acres on our property, so six times that amount. And then they built the retaining wall, a very large wall that completely encircled uh, the, the temple. Now, now the wall... Uh, um, Again, very extensive. The, 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 the highest point, if, if, if we were in a Kidron Valley, which is the lowest point of the valley, and look up, and then you see the wall go up from there, it was almost 200 feet from the top of the wall to the, the bottom of the valley right outside the wall. Our cross is 50 feet. So imagine something 200 feet. And that's just the top of the retaining wall. The temple then went 90 feet above that. Uh, again, an extensive structure. The, uh, today, what's left is the Wailing Wall. The foundational stones for the retaining wall were enormous, all chiseled by hand. Uh, it's estimated that the, that the foundational stones that are still there in place weigh 400 tons. Now, just to put that in perspective, the rocks behind me, those large <coughs> rocks are between 7 and 12 tons. So one stone, one foundational stone, 400 tons. Imagine the, the size of that. And that's the retaining wall. And the temple went up from there. Now, now, you have to understand that the Jews had this idea that the temple is the center of the world. Uh, there's a, a writing called the Midrash. And what the Midrash is, is a Jewish commentary on the Old Testament scriptures. It started a few hundred years before Christ. It was active during Jesus' day and then a little bit after Jesus. Rabbis, they were well-respected. They made comments on the Bible. They were gathered in this thing called the Midrash. And one of the rabbis said this. 
about the importance of the temple. The land of Israel is at the center of the world. Jerusalem is at the center of the land of Israel, and the temple is at the center of Jerusalem. Do you see how much weight they put on the temple? They really thought it was the center of the world. And their idea was when Messiah comes, surely he's going to come to Jerusalem, come to the temple, and, and begin to reign. Right? That's the place. Jesus' disciples, all of them but Judas, had made the connection, Jesus is the promised Messiah. So it would be natural, they're thinking, was well, somehow, okay, he talks about his crucifixion, don't quite understand that, but he says he's coming back to life, right? So it makes sense that eventually he's going to take over and reign from that temple area. Keep that in mind as we begin Matthew chapter 24. Jesus left the temple area and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. The temple complex. Mark's gospel also says that they, what also caught their attention were the, the stones, the foundational stones of the temple wall. Okay, they're, they're, they're stunned by this. They're still amazed by this. Verse 2, Jesus. Do you see all these things, he asked. I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. For those disciples, these words of Jesus seemed unbelievable. If we had been in New York City on September 10, 2001, as part of a tour group, and our tour guide leads us to below the Twin Towers and says, look up, and we see the giant towers, and then were to tell us, I tell you the truth, by this time tomorrow, both these towers will be reduced to rubble, we would say unbelievable. But it happened, didn't it? What Jesus is telling his disciples is, is no less shocking. You know what? It happened. About 30 years later, from the time Jesus spoke the words, Jerusalem was destroyed, and especially the temple complex. It's well recorded in Scripture, and, and it's well recorded in history. Jesus predicted it. And in 70 A.D., um, the Jews were just fed up with Rome, the Roman occupation. They wanted their independence back. And, and Rome doesn't tolerate that. In the Roman Empire, you either submit to Rome and accept the, the Pax Romanus, the peace of Rome, or we will crush you, was Rome's attitude. So Caesar gave the order to the generals, and to the soldiers, that nice temple that Herod built, destroy it. Now, Josephus was one of the historians who lived in that time. He was hired by Rome, but he was a Jewish person, not a Christian. He's recorded all this. And, and he was there after the destruction. And, and this is what happened. The walls, the fortified walls of the temple, right? It held for a while. But the Roman soldiers, they shot flaming arrows over the wall, and eventually they caught the, the room on fire that held the linens for the priests. Those linen, linen garments were quite flammable. They caught on fire. It, it, and then that caught on fire. And then that, uh, the Holy of Holies is 30 feet by 30 feet by 90 feet tall. And there's, a th uh, there's three walls. And then the, the other area is a curtain. 
three inches thick, 90 feet tall. And that storeroom caught the curtain on fire, and the entire complex was up in flames. Now, something else about this. Josephus writes that the top of the Holy of Holies, 90 feet tall, it was covered in gold. Josephus says that from the Kidron Valley, with the sun shining, it was blinding. You could see Jerusalem and the temple from up to 20 miles away as you're traveling towards it. There's gold in the ceiling. There's gold utensils in the Holy of Holies. And when that complex burned to the ground, the gold melts, and the gold was going into the crevices and into the mortar, the stones and the bricks. And what happened was the greed for gold, those Roman soldiers tore that place apart, brick by brick, stone by stone, in pursuit of gold. And so what Jesus said to his disciples, time of our text, happened. Now, if you're putting your weight in the temple, you believe Jesus to be the Messiah, and he now says this, you're like, wait a second here. Right? So that, that is a context, again, of, of Matthew 24 and, and 25. Now, what Jesus does next is he takes his disciples, they leave the temple complex, they go down the Kidron Valley, where you look up and it's 200 feet to the top of the wall. He climbed up the other side to the, the Mount of Olives. The backdrop, again, is Jerusalem. The backdrop is the temple area, verse 3. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? They asked some pretty powerful questions. When? When will this complex be destroyed? What are the signs of your return, and when are you returning? And what Jesus does, even though it's only a couple weeks away from his crucifixion, he gives the most thorough answer recorded in Scripture to a question asked of him. Two chapters worth to answer their three questions. So today we see an answer like none other concerning the end times and Christ's return. Um, I'm going to read verses 4 through 14. Don't worry, we're going to summarize here pretty quickly. I can't cover two chapters in the amount of time I normally give to a message. Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Christ and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of war, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, the kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Wars, rumors of wars, nation against nation, bloodshed. Natural disasters, earthquakes, famines. Mark's Gospel, parallel account, mentions the surging of the sea. You might say, and you can make the argument, we've always had these things. There have been wars for a long time. We go back to known history, 3600 B.C. There's been a lot of warfare. If you go from 3600 B.C. to today, there's only been 8% of the time where there hasn't been any major wars taking place in world history. I read uh, this week that if you add up the, the amount of deaths to war 
from 3600 BC to this present day, uh, innocent casualties, soldiers dying, it's about 3.6 trillion lives have been lost to war. You might argue, okay, all these things have happened for a long time. Natural disasters, right? They happen, um, all, they're out there. But Jesus says these are the beginning of birth pains. If you've ever experienced the, the, um, in, 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 a, in a hospital room, uh, your wife or somebody giving birth, or if you're a, a, a mother here, you know that the contractions, they start and they get stronger and stronger. Longer um, contractions, stronger contractions, the duration lasts longer, but there's a shorter time in between, right? So that's what Jesus is saying. These things are in, are in place. Um, he, he goes on from there. Then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase in wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. You look at this. It, he's, he's using hyperbole. Many false prophets. Many fall away. The increase in wickedness. The love of most grows cold. He doesn't paint a, a very pretty picture at all. You're going to be persecuted. Some of you put to death. That's what he tells them. You know, in the, in the first 300 years of Christianity, the Roman Empire, they, they tried. They made 10 concerted efforts to stop out Christianity. The, the, the Caesars in, in Rome, the emperors. Um, we were in Rome three weeks ago, and I was a little bit surprised. Some of the audio tours, they kind of downplayed the Christian martyrdom. I said, well, that probably didn't happen. <coughs> but it did. Eusebius is a Roman historian. He was hired by Rome. He lived during Nero's time. After Nero died, he wrote about Nero. Not a Christian. Eusebius writes that many Christians, so large quantities of Christians, were burned at the stake around Nero's racetrack. It's called Circus Maximus. If you've ever been to Rome, there's a Colosseum, gladiator spot there, but just within walking distance of the Colosseum, it's three football fields in length. It's not very wide, it's a very thin track, and it's still there as far as the, uh, the gravel, nothing grows on that track, and there's, there's buildings on the right at the end of it. The grandstands were made out of wood, so they're not there anymore, but they estimate that it, it could hold 100,000 people. And, and Nero was kind of like the first NASCAR. Uh, he liked it. He loved the races. He decided to have night races. How do you have night races if you don't have electricity? And his answer was, we're going to burn Christians. And that's what he did. That's what Eusebius, the Roman historian, wrote. Jesus' words came true. Persecution unto death. Even today, collectively, there are Christians who lose their life because of their their faith. Now, I'm going I'm to jump forward a little bit. Um, it gets worse. Verse 30. Actually, verse 29. 
Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, stars will fall from the sky, the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the, the, sign, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all nations of the earth will mourn. Then they'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds in the sky with power and great glory, and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. That wasn't an answer that they were expecting. The disciples might think, okay, things are bad now. It's going to get a little bit worse. You're going to rise from the dead. Things will get better. That's what Jesus said. So, concerning the end times and his return, an answer like another, here's the very first villain, things are going to get much worse before Christ returns. Realize that we're... we're Closer to that day than they were. Now, I want, I, I want peace. I want our country to be a, a, a strong country. I want there to be, um, you know, a temporal peace in the world. I mean, who doesn't? But I'm fooling myself if I think that, that mankind will reach a point where there's this utopia, you know, peace ever. No. Jesus said it's going to increase in wickedness. Things will get worse before he returns. Um, you know, we can apply this in a, in a broader way. Just because I'm a believer doesn't mean that my problems go away. I might be facing something right now that isn't good. It's a false hope to think things will get better in this life. Many times they do, great. There's no guarantee of that. Quite often things get worse before they get better. Now, Jesus, though, wanted to assure them that when he returns, it will be much much better. And, and I, want to, I want to jump to chapter 25, verses 31 through 40. In chapter 25, verses uh, 31 through 40, Jesus gives a parable of the sheep and the goats. So Christ returns with the angels in full glory. He separates the entire world as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. The sheep are on Jesus' right side, the goats are on his left side. It's believers, unbelievers. And we're told this. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Jesus says to believers, Take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. It's a tremendous blessing that God is giving to each and every one of us. His kingdom. Right now, the kingdom of God is within us through faith. When Christ returns, it will be actual. It will be real. And, 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 it, and it's going to be beyond our, our possible uh, ideas right now. Much better, by far, than we can even imagine right now. Paul said in Ephesians 3, verse 20, that God does exceeding, exceedingly more than we can imagine. So I encourage you to imagine how great heaven is going to be. And God will make it exceedingly more, uh, greater than that. We're told this in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. Jesus will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He was seated on the throne and said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, I, it is done. 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give waters without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Inheritance, eternal life, uh, the kingdom of God prepared for us since the creation of the world. Now, even though things are going to get worse before Christ returns, the life to come will be better than we can possibly imagine. A friend of mine put it this way. The wealth and the power of this world will be like monopoly money and power compared to the life to come. Now, and the power and and the wealth of the life to come, it won't be tainted by sin whatsoever. Again, it'll far exceed uh, anything we can imagine. And it's, it's well worth living for. All right, still, he hasn't answered their question. When? When will this happen? Well, we read it as the gospel reading. Jesus said, no one knows the day or hour, not even the Son, only the Father in heaven. But he gives some clues. By the way, I encourage you to read both chapters word for word, Matthew 24 and 25. But there's, there's several parables. One of them is the parable of the ten virgins. Just a quick summary of the parable of the ten virgins. You have to understand Jewish weddings. Um, it, there were three parts to this. Uh, the first part was engagement. Quite often arranged. Parents would arrange who gets married to who. Right? They would be announced, and then, but the second part is betrothal, where it becomes formal. This couple has agreed to get married, and it would take a divorce to break that. And what would happen is that the man, the groom, he would pick up a second or third job. He would start working, saving up money in order to pay a dowry to his father-in-law. And so the period of time was uncertain. How long would that take? He would know, he's working at it, he's working at it. Um, it was a, a, a time, again, of trust in that. But when he had saved up enough money, he would get the word out, and he would return, the wedding would begin. The wedding typically lasts a week. So the parable of ten virgins is this, that the, 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 the groom is coming back, the wedding is about to begin, we have to be ready no matter what time of day it is. Jesus says in this parable there are ten virgins. There, there are five that are ready to go. They have oil in their lamps. Think of a little flashlight, enough light for yourself to see at night. In case the, the groom comes at night, they're ready. Five were unprepared. They didn't purchase any oil. They thought for sure he'd be back before now. So now it's nighttime, and, and the virgins without oil for their lamps... They tell those that do, give us some of your oil. And the, the five virgins who are prepared said, no, this, this is a calculated quantity for me. Go buy your own. So, so good luck. It's nighttime, right? So they, they take off to, to buy their oil, and that's exactly when the groom returns at midnight. At midnight. And it's too late for those others. Um, now, a, a clue is... At midnight, very late. It's Jesus' way of saying, it's going to take a while, guys, for me to return. Likewise, the parable of the talents. 
Jesus says it's like a, uh, a landowner who goes away, but he entrusts talents to his uh, people, put, put my, my money to work, when I return, I uh, will settle accounts. And we're told in that parable that he was gone a very long time. Alright, the third point is this. So as far as when, after what seems like a long time, Jesus will come back. Friends, it's been 2,000 years. It seems like a long time. But that's exactly what Jesus said. It seemed like a long time. Now, I, I want to wrap this up, and, and if you look at Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus is not going there as far as when, but what he's trying to get to them is, uh, be ready. Right? Be ready. My question for you is, the parable of ten virgins, five ready, they're all waiting for his return. Five are ready, five are not. We're all waiting, are we not, for Christ's return? How many of you are really ready? Are there any, is there anyone in this room who's not ready for Jesus' return? Now, now the oil and the lamps, that was a personal thing. That's my quantity of oil. Your faith is a personal thing. You cannot rely on somebody else's faith to get you to heaven. It is your faith and your faith alone. So are you ready? Or are you unprepared? My friends, if you're unprepared, now's the time. Admit it to Jesus. Right? I, I, I'm not ready. Forgive me. He forgives you. He paid for all sins. He can very quickly make you ready. And strengthen your faith. Now, be active. The parable of the talents. The whole thing is... Be active with God's resources right now to advance the kingdom of God. Are you advancing the kingdom of God? Are you dedicating time in your schedule in service to God? Are you dedicating your abilities, your talents, to advance God's kingdom right here in Aotuki, right here at Lamb of God? Are you using your resources? We all have resources, money that we live on, are you using it to advance God's kingdom? Are you giving offerings to the Lord? Now's the time. Be active. Invest in God's kingdom. <coughs> Thirdly, be reconciled. Jesus said he has reconciled the entire world to himself through his death and resurrection. Things are right between you and God through Jesus Christ. Now Jesus says, now be reconciled with God personal thing. Um, and also be reconciled with each other. Jesus said that if you come to worship and you're there to present your offering, when you remember that somebody has something against you, lay your offering down, first go be reconciled to your brother or sister, then come back and offer your gift. My friends, be reconciled with God, be reconciled with each other. Now, there's a reason that Jesus gave this answer like none other just a couple weeks before his death. Friends, we are in the end times. We truly are. If Paul said it 2,000 years ago, how much more so when I say it now? We're in the end times. Let's learn from these words of Jesus. Let's, empowered by him, be right with him through repentance, contrition of our sins, 
Know that Jesus loves us. Be ready. Have our lamps ready. And be active in his kingdom. To Jesus be the glory. Amen. May the true peace of God which surpasses our understanding keep our hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus.